We're in Luke chapter 5 this morning. If you remember last week, Luke chapter 4, Jesus had just started his public ministry. Now, you know who Jesus is, but they didn't. So you need to step into their shoes. We need to go back a couple thousand years. Chapter 4, Jesus is just beginning to present himself to people. And they're still trying to figure out what kind of man he is. They learned that he has authority over demons. And they were amazed when he could command a demon to come out of somebody. They were like stunned. End of the story. Now some new things are happening and they're learning more about him. In chapter 5, a leper comes up to him and asks him to heal him. And so Jesus does. And he says, but don't tell anybody. Just go to the priests, make the offering that Moses said, and be a testimony to the priest, but don't tell anybody else. Well, the guy, he was disobedient, probably just overjoyed and stupid. He went and started telling everybody. So on the one hand, now everybody knows Jesus can heal. On the other hand, the guy doesn't get a moment of peace or rest, and he can't do anything without being mobbed by people. And so he starts to heal a lot of people. So now they know he can cast out demons and he can heal. And they're about to learn something else about him. And that's where we are. Luke chapter 5. Let me tell you what happened. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a bed. And they tried to carry him into the house and put him in front of Jesus. Because of the crowd, however, they could not find a way to take him in. So here's the scenario. Everybody hears Jesus is at somebody's house healing people, so the house is mobbed. There's just, the whole house is surrounded. They're all pressed into the door. Everybody wants a moment of Jesus' time because everybody's sick. Everybody's got something they want to be healed from. What would you be pressing in for? I think my arthritis. That would be first. I got some other things if he'd be so kind. But yeah, I'd be in line. So these guys, they get to the house late, and they should have just, no way, let's just go home. There's no way. We have to wait a month to get through this crowd of people. There's no way. But these were good guys. They loved the man that they were trying to help. They were persistent. Nothing was going to keep them from God. So you know what they do? They climb up on the guy's roof. Nobody's up there. And they start digging a hole through the guy's roof. Talk about persistence. Talk about passion. They dig a hole through the roof big enough to lower this guy down right in front of Jesus. Those are the kind of friends I want. And that's the kind of passion you should have if you want to meet God. The Bible says, you will seek for me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. These guys, ah, oh, line's too big, we'll never get in, let's go home. That's not how you find God. You've got to get passionate you got to be serious. They wanted this guy healed. The healer was right there, and nothing was going to stop him. So they made an opening in the tiles, let him down on his bed into the middle of the group, right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw how much faith they had, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. Now the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, to put it into modern English, there were a bunch of pastors there, began to say to themselves, who is this man who speaks such blasphemy? God's the only one who can forgive sins. And Jesus knew their thoughts. Well, those are some profound words right there. Remember, they don't know much about Jesus at this point. But we're being told at this point he knew their thoughts. As soon as he started to question them on what they were thinking, they should have just shut up. This guy can read my mind. He's amazing. 
So it says, Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to them, why do you think such things? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say get up and walk? I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, pick up your bed and go home. It was a fair question. You're upset with me for saying your sins are forgiven. Is it easier to say that or to say get up and walk? Because the guy was paralyzed. He can get up and walk. Obviously, the answer was, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Who knows if it really happens? It's just words. But to say get up and walk proves you've got some authority and power. So Jesus said, I'll prove it to you. Get up and walk. And sure enough, that paralyzed man got up and walked. At once, the man got up in front of them all, took the bed he'd been lying on, went home praising God. Then they were all completely amazed, full of fear. They praised God, saying, what marvelous things we have seen today. They were all completely amazed, all full of fear, all praising God. Here's what I think. These Pharisees that were in there, these teachers of the law, I don't blame them for telling Jesus, hey, that's blasphemy. You can't say somebody's sins are forgiven. Remember, they didn't know who he was. And if some just average Joe, even a prophet... If he was just a prophet with healing powers, he cannot tell somebody their sins are forgiven. Prophets cannot do that. They were right for what they knew. A typical man cannot just tell you your sins are forgiven. They were right for what they knew. But they were wrong because they didn't know. Jesus proved who he was, and then it says they all went praising God. I bet you that was the Pharisees too. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, are often presented in the Bible as Jesus' enemies. They were the leaders. They were the religious hypocrites. Some of them were, but some of his greatest followers were from those people, too. So these guys, just because they're called Pharisees, don't assume they're bad guys. In this context, they did what leaders are supposed to do. Spiritual leaders are supposed to do that sort of thing. And they did it right. Jesus set them straight. From that point on, they needed to keep their mouths shut. I don't know if they did or didn't, because the Pharisees are very rarely named. They're just mentioned as a group of people. And there were a huge group of people. So every time Pharisees are mentioned, it's not always the same Pharisees. There are thousands of Pharisees, tens of thousands of Pharisees, perhaps. So I cut them some slack. I don't think they were being bad. So Jesus sets them straight. So what do we learn about Jesus now? Well, we learn he can cast out demons. He can heal lepers, pretty much heal anything. He um, can read people's minds, and he can forgive sins. Who is this guy? Remember, you know. They didn't know. This is just, this has never been done before. We've never seen this before. Nobody's ever written about it before. This is, taking, this is just blowing our minds. We don't know what to do with this guy. This is amazing. Speaking about him being able to forgive sins, he even made a more profound statement than that a little later, and it's only written in John 5. It's not in Luke, but let me read it to you. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Jesus is saying that people should give him the same honor that they give God up in heaven. If he is not the Son of God, if he is not divine himself, if he is not God in human flesh, that is one of the most blasphemous statements in all of Scripture. See, he's not leaving anybody any wiggle room. I love the way C.S. Lewis has put it. You've got to read some of his stuff. The man was amazing. 
But he said, you have three options concerning Jesus. He was the Lord, he was a liar, or he was a lunatic. You have no other options. He claimed to be God. So, if he claimed to be God and he's not, he's either a liar or a lunatic. Unless he was telling the truth, then he's the Lord. And that's exactly, here's what he's saying, that all people should honor me just like they honor the Father in heaven. Lord, liar, or lunatic. And he was accused of being all. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I know a lot of Jewish people. Um, I've witnessed to Jewish people over the years. And oftentimes people have a hard time understanding how like a kind, loving, gregarious rabbi could not be right with God. Steve, how can you say that? Well, I can say it because Jesus said it. I don't care if it's a rabbi, a priest, a minister, or a layman. If you're not right with Jesus, you're not right with God. He said, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You can't get right with God without getting right God's way. God sent his Son to be Savior of the world. If you disrespect that, you're disrespecting God. That's what Jesus is saying. Then he said, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. If you don't have this memorized or circled or highlighted or sticky noted in your Bible, you're doing yourself a disservice. This is a powerful passage of Scripture. I tell you the truth. Whoever believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't say, we'll have it someday. If you could live the next 30 years better than not, you'll achieve heaven. He doesn't say that. He says, if you believe, you have eternal life. It's, he says, you've already crossed over from death to life. Not that you will someday if you can keep to the course. He says, you already have. You've already got your papers. You're already a citizen of heaven. You don't got to wait for your green card, your visa, or your citizenship papers. You've already got it. It's a powerful passage of scripture. I believe I'm saved. Not that someday I hope to be saved. I'm saved now because I do believe. Very powerful passage of scripture. So, John, I mean, Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins his ministry. Chapter 5, we learn a whole bunch about him. His ministry really starts to take off. He's being crowded by people. Time to train up some help. So he starts to select his apostles. Right off in his ministry, just in chapter 5. In fact, four of the 12 are selected in this chapter. So that's a third of them already selected. But it's interesting. You know, he doesn't put an ad up in Craigslist. Needed, 12 disciples. Bad pay, great benefits. Text Jesus. He finds his disciples in a very unique way. So one day he's out standing by the lake. And he's giving a sermon. But everybody's crowding in on him. And he's finding himself going up against the water. And he sees a couple boats over there. And the fishermen are by there working on their nets. And he says, hey, is that your boat? Yeah, can I use it? Will you put me out into the water a little way? So the fishermen get in the boat with him, bring him out into the water so he can teach from the boat. Now nobody's pressing up against him. He's got a place to sit. He can be comfortable. It's nice. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats. 
They were left there by the fishermen. And he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon. You probably know Simon better as Peter. And he asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So he just kicked back and started teaching. Now, how long did he teach? We don't know. But I'm sure it was quite a while. He was probably teaching them for hours. I just can't imagine another scenario where he's talking to them for five minutes. You know, he was already teaching. He gets into the boat. He's teaching some more. He's got a lot to do in three years. So he's teaching, he's teaching, he's teaching. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Wow, that's not a grudging obedience. I don't know what it is. You can just imagine Peter's mind. No disrespect, but you're a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. I've been fishing all night, dropping my nets all over this lake. There are no fish to be had. If anybody would have caught fish, I would have caught fish. But you're the rabbi, you're the master. Whatever you say, I'll do. Come on, guys. That's the attitude I'm hearing in the text here. Because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Now you realize these nets are made for catching fish. They shouldn't be breaking. This is a huge amount of fish. Fish like they have never seen before, never caught before. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats with so much fish that they began to sink. That doesn't happen ever anywhere. Nobody ever gets that many fish. I've seen the type of boats that they used to have back in those days. They had big holes. They were very buoyant. I can't imagine the amount of fish it would have taken to sink one of those things. He was a professional fisherman. This has probably never happened in all of recorded history in that lake. And yet it happened to them. Just because Jesus said, put down your nets. By the way, not only did they catch a lot of fish, but they just made a fortune. Just think about whatever industry you have. Think about what makes you money in your industry. Sell a car, sell jewelry, drive a taxi, sell a cabinet you made with your hands, and you sell one, you've had a good week. Well, imagine selling 500 that week. Blah! Like, yeah, you hit the lottery, this is awesome. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Wow. Talk about a moment of transformation, huh? What was he thinking? He just had a spiritual experience. His heart was totally just transformed. He realized he was in the presence of the divine, and he did not feel worthy at all. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. He's going to make him a fisher of men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. They had just made a fortune. But it didn't seduce them to stay behind and sell it and make money. They left it. And they followed Jesus. 
One day, this really rich guy came to Jesus. His heart just wasn't right, and he knew it wasn't. He, but he didn't know why. So he came to Jesus and said, what do I need? And Jesus said, you know the commandments. He said, yeah, but I keep those. Jesus said, fine, you want to know what you need? Sell everything that you have and come follow me. And the scripture says the man went away sad because he was wealthy. On the one hand, he chose wealth over a relationship with Jesus. Peter, James, and John just chose Jesus over wealth. And I know who you are. You're Peter, James, and John. Now, they left everything and they followed him. It's the same with us. It's not like you have to sell everything you have to become a follower of Jesus. That's not the point. The point is, where's your heart? What do you value the most? At this moment in history, they had an opportunity to physically walk with Jesus. How could anybody think anything was more valuable than that? Right? But some people did. Not Peter, James, and John. They were, they were smart. We get to walk with the Messiah. We're walking. They didn't know exactly who he was, but pfft, this guy is something. He's a prophet at the very least, and we're walking with him. He's called us. We're going. It took a little bit of work, though, on Jesus' part to win them. First, they got to listen to him preach. Then he borrowed their boat, so now he's alone with them. Then they get to listen to him preach for a few more hours. Then he asks them for another favor, put out and let out your nets. Okay. They'd already worked all night. They were exhausted. If you say so, we'll go drop out our nets. And Jesus rewards them for their faithfulness with the biggest catch of their life. And he offers them a job. He offers them a ministry, a calling. How about giving up the sardines? Come with me to fish for men. And they're like, we're in. Now this next guy, I told you there's four. This was Peter, James, and John. The next guy comes just like that. Doesn't have any effort whatsoever. Jesus has come and he comes. Listen. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. He's also known as Matthew in the Bible. He's sitting at his tax booth. Okay? Next. Cha-ching! Next. That's it. That's his job. So he's sitting at his tax booth, collecting money. Jesus says, imagine this, okay, the guy's sitting there, right? The guy's sitting there. Jesus, down the street a little ways, coming up to the guy. Maybe comes right up to the booth. Come follow me. He gets up, he leaves, and he follows Jesus. For all we know, the bag of gold coins is still sitting there. It just says he immediately left and followed Jesus. Maybe he took the coins with him. I don't think so. I don't know. But it wasn't like, why should I? Or let me think about it. Or I, I got a good deal here. I'm, I'm, I'm busy. Can I come after five? It's just, follow me, Jesus said to him. He, Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Same words about Peter, James, and John. Left everything. Why was it so easy for Levi to follow Jesus? I can tell you something about tax collectors. They had money. That was a, that was a job, man. If you, you wanted to be somebody back there, you wanted to be a tax collector. But there was a problem with being a tax collector, too. I think it was easy for him to follow Jesus 
because he knew a good opportunity when he saw one. And I believe that he was a broken man looking for redemption. And when a prophet rabbi walks by and says, how would you like to be my disciple, my associate? I'm in. He's found his redemption. See, tax collectors were considered the lowest class of people in Israel society back in the days of Jesus. We don't have classes of people today, so it's hard for us to understand how despised these people were. They would have been grouped together with prostitutes, drug dealers, pimps, and gangsters. Tax collectors were in that category in everybody's mind back in those days. The lowliest of the low. They were despised. They were considered a scummy group of people. If Levi, as a tax collector, had walked to the local synagogue and offered them a bag of gold, they would have said, get out of here with your dirty money. We don't take gold from people like you. Really. It was against Judaism to take money from tax collectors. They would have dug it out of the temple treasury and thrown it back at him. Talk about despised. I mean, how low are you going to be that somebody doesn't want your money? Because money, everybody loves money. That's despised. That's low. If they witnessed a robbery or a murder, they couldn't testify in court. Their testimony was considered invalid. That's how despised they were. Nobody would take their money, and they couldn't testify in court. Not only that, but you got to understand who his boss was. His boss was a guy named Herod. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the Herod family. Talk about a bunch of winners. Holy cow. So the first Herod was his dad. So he worked for the son of the first Herod. All these Herods are all Herod family. The first Herod is known in history as Herod the Great. Uh, He's the one that built the temple mount and made it bigger and broader. In fact, the temple in the days of that Herod, the one he started, was probably the biggest building in the world at that time. Biggest single building in the world. And he actually took a mountain and expanded it to fit the temple that he made. This Herod was known for his architectural skills. He made an artificial harbor in Caesarea out of cement underwater. He was the first to ever do anything like that. He was the first king of Israel after the Romans came in. So he was juggling the Romans and the Jews and trying to keep everybody happy. He was not a good man, but he was famous and successful. Under him, Israel prospered. Building that temple, he employed thousands and thousands and thousands of people. They all had government jobs. And you know how government jobs are. Everybody wants a government job. So it was the same back then. Everything was prosperous, but he was a bad man. Towards the end of his life, a bunch of guys from the east came to him and said, we hear the Messiah's here. Where is he? And Herod said, "Uh, I don't know. So he got the wise guys and the scribes and the rabbis, and they said, the Messiah's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. He said, okay, go to Bethlehem. When you find him, bring word back to me. So the guys go back, the wise men, the magi, to Bethlehem, but they're warned by God, don't go back and tell Herod, because Herod wanted to kill the baby. So these guys just fled another way when Herod realized he was tricked. He said, good, go kill all the babies in Bethlehem. We'll get this Messiah. That was Herod. Could you imagine being raised by that man? He had probably 10 or more sons. He killed a few of them. And some wives of his he killed. He, history says he was paranoid that they were trying to take his throne. Maybe he was paranoid. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't. 
those things happen. Your kids conspire against you to take your throne with their mothers. Happens all the time in those days. But either way, he killed his wives, he killed his sons. And towards the end of his life, when he killed all these babies, he kept offering different sons the throne. Finally, he settled in on Herod Archelaus. In fact, in my office, I have a coin minted by Herod Archelaus. So someday, if you want to see it, let me know and I'll show it to you. It's an authentic coin from those days. Archelaus took over the big chunk of the kingdom, and he was also a Herod. He had some brothers who took over other pieces. Up in the Golan and Syria, his brother Philip took over. And then in the Galilee area, and then down south by the Red Sea, one Herod had both of those areas too. That was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the Herod of the Galilee area. This is the Herod that's mentioned in the Gospels. This is the one that interacted with Jesus and John the Baptist. This is the Herod that had John the Baptist executed. This is the Herod that partnered with Pilate and ended up turning Jesus over to be executed. This was not a good guy. This was Matthew's boss. So what kind of guy do you have to be to work for a guy like that? And if you were a typical Jew, what would you think of Matthew for working a guy like working with a guy like that? You you would you would be considered a traitor. The scummiest of all people. By the way, the situation with John the Baptist is actually recorded in Roman history. It's not just in the Bible. One of the things I love about the Bible is unlike all the other religions in the world, we have our holy scriptures, but the events in those scriptures are recorded in other places too. Um, throughout the Middle East, the other dynasties, the, the Persians and the, um, the Babylonians, their stuff has been dug up, and stories that are mentioned in the Bible are also mentioned in the stuff that's been dug up. It's amazing. Some of the names, some of the events, some of the people. This would be another example of something like that. The story about John the Baptist and Herod Antipas is mentioned in the Bible. It's also mentioned in Roman history. Josephus wrote uh, the Antiquities of the Jews and the Wars of the Jews, and he worked for Rome. He was Jewish, but he, he worked for Rome. And here's what he wrote about John the Baptist and Herod Antipas. Quote, About this time, Eratos, the king of Arabia, Petrus, and Herod had a quarrel. Herod the Tetrarch had married the daughter of Eratus and had lived with her a great while. So this guy um, lived in the kingdom right next to Israel, but it wasn't Roman territory. So Herod married his daughter, you know, trying to make buddy-buddy nice with him. His name is Eratus. He married her daughter. Herod did. They were together for some years. But when he was at Rome, Herod, he lodged with Herod, his brother, but not by the same mother. However, he fell in love with Herodias, this last Herod's wife. So he met his brother Herod Philip's wife, Herodias, and fell in love with her. And by the way, it was also his sister. These people were winners. And the way it was so convoluted, she was like a half-sister or half-niece I, it was like, talk about a cousin picnic. This was, this was messed up. So, he fell in love with Herodias, snatched her from her brother Philip, and divorced his wife, the daughter of Eratus, the king of Arabia, also the king of Petra, that area that you know about. 
So Eretus made this the first occasion of his enmity between him and Herod. So they raised armies on both sides and prepared for war. And when they had joined battle, all of Herod's army was destroyed. Now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, and that very justly, as a punishment for what he did against John that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man, and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so come to baptism. Accordingly, John was sent, to, sent as a prisoner to the castle at Macarius and was there put to death. Now the Jews had an opinion that the destruction of this army was sent as a punishment upon Herod and a mark of God's displeasure on him for killing John. The whole story about John the Baptist is mentioned in Roman history, and all the Jewish people loved John the Baptist, thought he was a great guy. Herod had him killed, and then Herod's army was defeated, and they said that's why. So, Herod steals his brother Philip's wife, his half-sister, niece, weird relationship thing, divorces this woman, goes back home. This woman's daughter, Salome, does a dance for Herod. And he goes, oh, that was such an awesome dance. Happy birthday. I'll give you anything you want up to half my kingdom. What do you want? So Herodias, Philip's wife, now his wife, Salome's mother, whispers to the daughter and says, get John the Baptist's head on a dish. That's what I want. So that's how it all went down. One sin led to another sin led to another sin. Evil upon evil upon evil. This was Matthew's boss. Why would Matthew want to follow Jesus? Why would Jesus want Matthew? That's the real question. With Jesus, it's not who you were. It's who you choose to become that matters. That's why he wanted Matthew. Because Matthew's past doesn't matter. He saw his heart. Something was going on in Matthew that only a Savior could see. And he saw a disciple in him. And he gave him the opportunity and he jumped at it. Left all and followed him. Just like that. It's the same today. It's not your past that matters. It's your future that matters. Any day can be a new day between you and God. Now that sounds good to us. We like that. But to the religious leaders back in that day, they saw Jesus bringing on a tax collector as his disciple. Can you imagine the scandal? When I was in Bible college, there was this guy who walked around with one of the, the counselors there. Um, talk about bling bling. Gold rings, diamond rings, jewelry on all of his fingers. You know, shiny red shoes, big gold chains, gold teeth. And he was walking around campus. And first time you see him walking on Bible College campus, you're like, you'd expect him down on the south side after dark, hanging out with his lady friends. But this player is at the Bible College. What's going on? Player, he's not a player, he's a pimp. But this pimp found the Lord. And he hung, up, hung out on the Bible college campus. But he still looked like a pimp. Well, he was ministering to his former prostitutes, to the other pimps, and to the gangsters in the world he knew. Besides, why would he change? Those are the kind of clothes he liked. You know, a lot of cool rings, man. And you could tell just looking at him, he was no normal everyday guy. 
And to see him walking on that college campus after we found out who and what he was gave us all a sense of pride. But when you first see somebody like that, your first response is, what are you doing here? Now, we know the Savior. We expect things like this, but they didn't know any Savior. They just saw Jesus taking on a pimp, as it were, as his disciple. It'd be like, I put up an advertisement, I need an associate pastor. And a bunch of highly qualified Bible college seminary graduates with degrees and ties come in for the interview, and I find a drug addict, and I hire him. In our culture, we don't understand why that's bad. It's not, because Jesus is only concerned with your future, not your past. But in that culture, it's the worst thing he could have done. Now, he makes it worse. Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Luke says others. The other gospel says other sinners. So you've got to understand, not only is Jesus hanging out with the lowliest scum-sucking swine he could find in culture, but now he goes to a banquet full of them. How would you behave? I think as people who know Jesus, you'd say that's cool. Pastor's ministering to the downtrodden. That's what he's supposed to do. But in that culture, it's like, ooh, you're tainted. And you're approving of their lifestyle by eating with them. So Jesus was getting despised. It's funny. Levi, the scummiest of the scummy, was being honored by the most highest of, of people, a rabbi. And the rabbi was lowering himself to the scummiest of scummies. Just like God likes it. No, that guy wasn't too scummy for Jesus. You know what you find at the bottom of the barrel of humanity? The best people. See, the people floating on the top think they're so wonderful. They're not. See, what they don't realize is even though they're floating on the top, they're still in the barrel. We're all contaminated. But the people on the bottom got nowhere lower to go. All they can do is go up. And they cry out, God, I'll do anything. Let me follow you. Save me. And God says, yeah, I'll save you. And they become wonderful people while the people floating at the top are looking down their noses at them. Perspective's all wrong. Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So why would Jesus call Levi? Because he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The healthy didn't need him. It was the sick. And this was a match literally made in heaven. Matthew became an apostle and a great man of God, while all these Pharisees who thought they were great men of God ended up becoming enemies of Jesus. Jesus said, it's not your past that matters, it's your future. If you'll repent of your sins and follow him, he will take you and bless you and use you for his glory. In Matthew chapter 11, listen to what he said. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Before I knew that passage of scripture, I came to believe in Jesus. 
and I tell people that the moment I said the prayer, the so-called sinner's prayer, I decided to turn from my sins and follow Jesus, I felt this huge weight of oppression lift off of me. I felt good. I felt light. I felt new. I felt different. I felt relieved. Sometime later, I learned this passage of Scripture. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I experienced that. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest to your souls. And I did. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus isn't saying, follow me and I'll make your life good and pain-free. It's not good or pain-free. It's just way better than the alternative. Way better. And the promise of the afterlife and the next world to come is glorious. Still have grief? Yes. Still have sorrow? Yes. But it's from a lighter perspective than what it would have been. Following Jesus doesn't remove all of life's burdens. just makes those burdens lighter than they otherwise would be. And he promises to walk with you. And he gives you a family to share your burdens with, to pray for one another and support one another. In fact, we have a prayer room. We open it up every week after church. And I encourage you to go in there and get prayer. There's people in there that want to pray with you. And it's surprising that there's not 30 people lined up every Sunday. That surprises me. What's wrong with you people? Don't you realize you need prayer? And don't you realize that prayer helps? Get your butts over in the prayer room. Don't be so proud and so arrogant. Oh, I don't need prayer. Yes, you need prayer. And if you don't need prayer, go over there and pray for me, please. I need prayer. And most of the people I know need prayer. You don't have to get intimate and tell them all your problems. Just say, hey, God knows. Would you please pray for me? Yeah. And if you really want to get spiritual, Scripture says, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another. Good. After church, you end up in that prayer room, and they'll pray for you over there, okay? And for now, would you please all just bow your heads and join me in prayer? Lord God, I believe in prayer. I believe in you. And I believe that you care and that you answer prayers. And I pray that you would show everybody in this church the power of prayer. I pray that you would bless them and keep them, make your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them, and grant them your peace. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.